0: Okay, I said to Gary that I was feeling a little, I suppose nervous in in some part, but um, this is going to sound weird, but in a sense, worried about boring you guys. (laughs) Because that's like, I don't want to be bored. And um, yeah, look, there's nothing boring about the Word of God, but... If it, I'm hoping that it doesn't feel laborious, like you're like, oh my gosh, okay, we have to get through this. There's links here, there's very important links that we're making, that we, what we're doing is we're creating this, this grid, this framework for you guys so that you can start to see the incredible impact on what Jesus really did. It wasn't just the cross that he died for our sins and that kind of is the extent of the gospel, there's so much more. And that's the exciting thing. So, and I, I have to apologize because I kind of organized this like one or two weeks into the thing. We've got a Google, Google Drive link where you can access all the, the notes and the slides for the series. I've created a, a short URL link there if you do that do or whatnot. Or you can use the QR code there, but you do need to have your own Google email. A Gmail account in order to be able to get into this what's going to happen is that you'll it'll send me an email and then I will give you the access so it won't be immediate it's not like you're gonna see it all now but if you are interested that is if you struggle come after, come speak to me afterwards and we will do it okay I can we can put this slide back up at the end all right so our journey so far has been, can you believe we're in week eight? It's been two months. This is pretty cool. Okay, so we've had. We've dealt, three weeks ago, we talked about the twin rebellion, the fall um, in Genesis 3. We all kind of know that story, but we added a little bit more depth to it, and that resulted in us having a death problem. Yeah, it's a big problem to have, I kid you not. Our biggest problem, however, is estrangement from God. And that's what really causes the death issue. Um, this, and then, of course, we had the Nakash, the, the accuser, and I unpacked that if you're interested in that, go and listen, it's on YouTube. Then we had our second rebellion. Yes, people, there is more than one rebellion. And uh, actually, this rebellion, we get more supernatural help than ever. Did we want it? No, we didn't really need it, but now we get more help in destroying ourselves. So this is where depravity came, like we had Cain and Abel and then Lamech who was killing, like Cain killed his brother, Lamech killed people just for whatever, it became senseless killings. But what happened in the second rebellion is depravity crept in. And now evil on another level came into humanity's, like our world. It got so bad, God had to send a flood to kind of cleanse the earth, cleanse the land. And if you wanna listen to last week's preach about more on that, go for it, it's on YouTube. So once again, you see in, um, I think it's Genesis 9, God repeats again, He's very patient with us because He goes, okay guys, Eden mandate, be fruitful, multiply, subdue, fill the earth, have dominion. Then again, and, you know, if you're a dad or a mom parenting 101, if you're going to say it, you're going to say it one more time. This is God. He's going, okay, to Noah and his sons. It's the same language. It's the same Edenic mandate. Go read it in Genesis 9. It says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So the Edenic mandate never, ever, ever goes away. All right. <clears throat> and of course, now we, today what we're gonna be doing is we we're gonna talk about what Michael Heiser calls the divine allotment. Well, what is that? I'm gonna get into it, so just be patient, guys. <clears throat> so what happens is we continue to copy and paste this this Nakash seed, this the stupidity of us believing that we can do things without God. And it really is a, the the spirit of stupid where we think we can do it ourselves, do it our way, right? So we think, okay, guess what? We, again, it's like raising children. They just, we just don't listen. So what happens here in Genesis 10, 11, is that actually now they just don't listen and what they do is instead of fulfill, like full go, multiply, they settle. They have a better idea. Don't we sometimes think that? I can do it my way? Was it Frank Sinatra? Yeah. And yet again, the lesson is, is gonna be a little painful. Hopefully we'll learn from this time. What do you guys think? All right, for us to be able to kind of, what I'm gonna do today is I have to stitch a few kind of threads in. So Genesis 11 is about the Tower of Babel. Or I don't know how some people pronounce it, but it, so we think it's about a tower, kind of a, fa- was, <laughs> all the construction guys are like, yeah, this, this is a doomed construction site. <laughs> like a really bad one, it, it didn't get finished. But um, let's read, so what I'm saying is I have to, I have to kind of jump around in the text a bit in order for you to be able to pull out these different threads for us to understand the true context of what's going on in Genesis 11, because part of the problem is, so if I was to say to you guys, internet, most of you, maybe not my mom-in-law, but most of you have a grid, and understanding you really immediately have a picture of what that means to you, right? If I was to say, telephone, it's funny, because you've got um, people from my era, we go, call on the phone. You've got kids who, with the cell phones, they call like this. So there is already instantly, like within generational things, things, our grids start changing. So we are quite removed from Genesis, the Genesis kind of cultural world, as we've kind of unpacked to you guys. So I'm going to like explain to you what a telephone is in ancient times. All right, well, not really a telephone, but you kind of get what it means. So I have to go back. And I have to go back to Genesis 6, 4. So we spoke about the Nephilim Last time, you're like, what is that? Go listen, last week's thing, all right. The Nephilim, remember that they are the offspring of the watchers, the watchers were the sons of God, spiritual divine human, not humans, the spiritual divine beings who embodied themselves, had illicit sex with women and produced offspring, which is the Nephilim. Did I wig anybody out there? It's fun. All right. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, time of Noah, time of the flood, and also afterwards, when the sons of gods went into the daughters of humankind, and they bore to them children to them. They were the mighty warriors that were from ancient times, the men of renown. That sounds a little positive in my book. I'm like, I always under, couldn't understand why that sounded positive, but actually it's, there's quite a negative connotation. So an ancient, an ancient Israelite would have picked up on a lot of the strands and the grids they already had about what this text is trying to say. <clears throat> so we were meant to see that even though a large portion of the Nephilim were killed in the flood, It doesn't mean all of them did, because here's a little um, kind of free thing, is that the biblical text does support that the, the, the flood was global, but it also supports that it could be a large regional flood as well. Check, I can see Adrian's frowning at me. I'll say it again, the biblical text does support that there was a global cosmic cosmic flood. It also, however, supports that it was not global and it could be regional. So some of the the people who are kind of studied geography and geographical earth stuffies often have the they can't get past this point, and this is not in my notes, that I know Annalise's husband Roy would be interested to hear this, that actually there is a large amount of physical evidence as well as biblical evidence that there was a, a regional flood and the Bible is okay with that. So we can be okay with that. So if somebody comes and gives you like, oh, how can you say there was a world flood? You go, you're probably right. However, in their minds, for them in those days, it must have felt like it was the world had flooded. And the language gives to both, and we're okay with that. We really don't need to protect God. So, so now we know that, yes, the Nephilim perished in the floods, most of them, and then demons were released, but we also know that some of them survived. And none of this is coincidental, which is quite interesting. So Genesis 10, let me take you there. Now this is in our, what they call the table of nations. It's a list and I'll get into that later, but listen to this, Cush was the father of Nimrod. There's a name for you people, no don't call your child Nimrod, please. Who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Sometimes you're like, why are these guys writing things like this? The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon. Blah, 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 blah. Note, it's from the land of Assyria, he built Nineveh. And so anyway, I'm not going to go into kind of those places, but these are geographical areas that are quite important going forward. So let's look at Nimrod. So why am I I highlighting Nimrod? Well, because he was a mighty warrior. Now, if you remember in the text from Genesis four, they talked about the Nephilim as if they were mighty warriors. So you've got a link. That's number one. He was Although in Hebrew, every time his name was mentioned, it was always mentioned with another word, which was in connection with rebellion. So for the, Hebrew, the Hebrews, he was not a good guy. He was a really, really evil dude. Okay, so remember that. His power and success was always seemed to be based on violence and tyrannical rule. He wasn't a good king. He was the founder of all the kingdoms of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. That's also important to remember. Those two kingdoms go on to dismantle at, further down the line your, your southern and northern um, Israelis of Israel and Judah. So these two kingdoms that Nimrod establishes dismantles eventually Israel as a kingdom. And he was... In Jewish tradition, and I think in Mesopotamia as well, at the time, he he was thought to do, so his city was Babylon. Babel was built in Babylon. That's where Babel was originated. So he was thought to be the guy who was the founder of, he came up with the idea, hey, let's build a tower. Okay. So his name, I mentioned Genesis 10. His name is the only individual name found in that list, that genealogy list. And there's a reason for it because, and let's go to the next one. None of this is coincidence, like I said, because, because his name is the only singular individual name found in the list of the table of nations in Genesis 10. He is now seen as like this theological bridge. So he, they are bridging Genesis 6 the Nephilim, this guy's a descendant of the Nephilim. They, they're linking it to Genesis 11, and then they're, gonna link it, they're linking it to future events as well, not good events against Israel. So what did he inspire? When, If he was the founder, and that's the belief, what did he inspire? How did he do this? So these guys, the peoples got together and it says in Genesis 11, three to four, they kind of said, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they used bricks instead of stones and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the earth. Now guys, this is not a tower where we think let's build the tallest building. It's not about materialistic actual tower. We think sky rise, you know, you go to, I think it's Hong Kong, they've got those massive, it's not about that. So Genesis 11, carries on to say, God comes down to see the city. He comes and says, hmm, let me have a look and see what these guys are doing. And then he sees, uh-oh, if these guys can get together and be that coherent, then um, there's literally no stopping them and what they can do. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so they'll not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them all over the earth and they stopped building, not only the tower, but that says they stopped building the city. So we kind of think, well, oh, that's, that's a story of the Tower of Babel, kind of end of, but we have to understand all the grids that are kind of all the, the links, all the stuff. So when you read this, what is common here? Just read it again. What is standing out there and what is, does any links go back to some other verses? What are you picking up? What's a repetitive thing, a phrase that they keep using? Let us. God even says it. Let us. That's linking back to Genesis. It's a perversion of the Edenic mandate. So they are going, come, let us do this thing. So in, even in that is like divine counsel language, let us, it's like the royal we. So I said to you guys, come, let us have some pizza. But I'm paying for it and I'm buying. So it's kind of like the territorial kind of divine spirits that are over this nation, over kind of inspiring Nimrod is going, come, let us. And we think we're clever enough to go, hey, this is our idea. God is coming down and he's going, no, 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 let me, let us, me and my kingdom, let us sort this problem out, right? Okay. So it's important when you start seeing phrases, links, what reminds you of, because those are these hypertext things that we hyperlinks that the Bible is always there. So. But another important thing that we don't understand, and we don't always get, even in the footnotes in the Bible, is another text, and this is Deuteronomy. Well, let me kind of, so the Tower of Babel is this doomed, like I said, construction site. Phil, you don't want to be the head kind of foreman of this, this thing. So Babylon is kind of the source of sinister activity and evil. It's the source of divine knowledge. This is all from the Hebrew Second Temple writings, the Enoch books, and the books of Jubilee, and the books of the Watches, All this information comes out. So, of course, instead of choosing to kind of extend Eden, they wanna settle. But the main point of the story is, instead of wanting God as their God, Yahweh as their God, they wanna do it another way. So the messaging in this is very, very clear to an ancient Israelite. They are rejecting God and His plan to restore Eden, and they're choosing another God for themselves, or other gods for themselves. So Deuteronomy 32 helps us unpack this this link, helps us unpack the context of what's happening. So Deuteronomy 32 says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. So, some of the, the translations have been a little unhelpful in this area, and I'm going to tell you why, because it says the sons of Israel, but is that the correct reading? I wonder. So I looked up all, the, um, all the, the different Bible translations that I have access to. So here's a few. We've got the uh, New King James. It says according to the number of children of Israel. The American Standard Version says the number of children of Israel. The Amplified says the number of the Israelites, a little bit off there. <clears throat> the NIV says the sons of Israel. So you've got four of like your main texts, all saying the sons of Israel. However, this is not a correct translation because remember if I told you before that unfortunately not all the modern ones are taking into account the Dead Sea Scrolls, the stuff that they are witnessing and kind of proving that that is what the original text is actually saying. So these guys were basically going, oh, I don't understand how this can be the sons of God because remember they had removed the supernatural element from kind of some, most of the text. So they were like, obviously my brain can't cope, so we're just going to, it must say the sons of Israel. All right. I don't think it was a, um, an intentional evil in, like, thing. I think it was just, well, I can't cope with that, so we're just going to stick in the sons of Israel because that's what they must have meant, kind of thing. There's two two ones, the ESV and the NIV have this translation, where it's according to the numbers of the sons of God or the heavenly assembly. So in this case, what God's talking about is actually he's talking about he allots, he assigned humanity, like different portions of humanity to different sons of God's, the heavenly council. So they were like these lesser divine spiritual beings where their responsibility was, here, you guys look after these nations for me. So that's what Babel was about. The result of Babel was God was giving over, delegating responsibility to these other spiritual beings. So the accurate reading is that it's the sons of God rather than the sons of Israel. So if you have a Bible that says sons of Israel, just cross it out and write sons of God or Elohim, because that's too accurate. Well, Louise, how do you know that that is accurate? Because that's two, and I mean, maybe, well, like I said, it's witnessed by the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there's a lot of those kind of scrolls in there. But hang on, there's more, and we can actually unpack it without even having the Dead Sea Scrolls. Don't you think that's pretty cool? So God's cool like that, because He's like, He knows we're a little skeptical in some areas, and He's like, okay, well, let me help you guys. So let's think about it. If it is, the sons of God is not the right reading, and it is the sons of Israel. Let's kind of unpack that. So time period. So if it's the sons of Israel, if you read your Bible, and I know not all things are in chronological order, what hasn't occurred, or rather, let me say, who hasn't been called yet? Abraham. Israel doesn't exist at this time, so literally, it cannot be that it is the correct translation because Israel didn't exist. So they couldn't put that in there. So they assumed something looking back. But at the time, there was no nation. And if you read the table of nations, there's no Israel. Okay, so now we've kind of, let's say proven that. And believe me, if you have more questions, I have access to Michael Heis's academic paper on this. If you want that, I'll send you the link. You can make yourself a big bowl of popcorn and some coffee, and then you're welcome to read through it if you can. He's far more clever than me, so I'm not gonna try and unpack all the technical things of how they got to this point as well. So, more accurate reading. Abraham wasn't around. He couldn't have, Israel couldn't have existed. So, Deuteronomy four is a, so you've got Deuteronomy 32 and deuteronomy 4 is kind of like the book ends that kind of mirror each other in terms of biblical events so now we're going to look at well why did god get upset with these people like why was he why did he why did he do what he did in babel so it says here in deuteronomy 4 giving you the answer of why god was upset so he says when you look up to the sky and you see the sun the moon and the stars Guys, it's not about physical sun, moon, and stars. When you see this kind of language in the Bible, he's talking about luminary spiritual beings who are divine counsel. That's why it says the whole heavenly creation. It's talking about a spiritual realm, not about a physical sun, moon, and stars, even though they they worship through some of these elements through, but there was a deity behind that. you must not be seduced to worship and serve them. For the Lord your God has assigned them to all the people of the world. So he's speaking, this is Moses speaking to the Israelites. You, however, the Lord has selected and brought from Egypt, that iron smelting furnace. I love the the Hebraic way of like being offensive. They're like, "Yeah, yeah, iron smelting furnace. And it's an insult. To be his special people as you are today. So that's one of the reasons why God was upset with him. Why? Because guess what? They were serving other deity, other gods. And God has always called Israelite, called his church, called us to serve and worship him. Idolatry is one of the biggest kind of things that God really doesn't want for us. So. Babel actually wasn't a tower, it was a ziggurat. A ziggurat. A ziggurat. It's probably too long to tap and too awkward, so it's a, a tower sounded much better. Oh, I should have put a photo up. Go look up on the internet Google ziggurat. They're real, real proper things. If um, Roger Bowden was here, he would come and tell me afterwards all about the ziggurats. So these were ancient temples and places of worship. People didn't stay in these towers. They were kind of like almost your pyramid thing, but like flat. I should have got a photo for you, I'm sorry. And they were seen as, (laughs) Charmaine's got some photos. They were seen as divine abodes for the gods. They actually, on the top of it, they put a bed and some food in that for the gods to kind of, and the idea was that the god would literally dwell there. So it wasn't for the people. It was for the gods to dwell. It's a bit of a, let's say, a perversion of Eden. So this is the place where heaven and earth intersected. This is the place where the gods dwell. Tower of Babel was a ziggurat. There we go, Lee is on the ball. That's your classic ziggurat. So in that like little structure on the top there, that's where the idea was that the, the deity would live. People didn't live there, the deity lived there. All right, thanks, Lee, that's awesome. Teamwork. So the purpose of Babel, of the ziggurat, was to bring heaven, the spiritual, and intersect with the, the earthly. People wanted to make a name for themselves. The name, the, the Hebrew word here is Shem. I don't know why I wrote Shema. Shem is the prayer that we pray to God. <laughs> they wanted to make a name for themselves instead of showing God's names to the nation. So again, it's a taking the, the, the Edenic mandate and perverting it and making it about themselves and about everything else but God. It was to substitute the rule of Yahweh, his kingdom, for the gods of Babylon. And God was not gonna stand for that. So he again had to bring in some justice. So Deuteronomy four nineteen to 20, I'm going back there again, but I'm highlighting a different section. For the Lord your God has assigned them to all the people of the world. And that's what happened at, at Babel. This was judgment of, of their actions. So from a human perspective, people would, the world was, let's say, disinherited from God. So we're like, oof, that sounds quite harsh. But this similar idea is in Romans 1, 24, where God says He gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. It's the same idea. So God was saying, I'm gonna give you over to, you want the other gods, well, I'm gonna, you don't want me. As, as your God, I'm gonna give you over to the other gods that you want. So that's the motivation behind it. Because he knew they didn't want relationship with him. So a guy called, I don't understand why most <laughs> scholars have these really weird names, that's so bizarre. Sail Hammer, all right, anyway, John, at least he's got a normal name. As throughout the biblical text, the land is often referenced to the inhabitants of the land. So when they say land, they're talking about the peoples, right? Thus, not only is the land divided in the confusion of languages, but more fundamentally, two great lines of humanity diverges from here. From the midst of these, the sons of Shem, and I'm going to explain who Shem is. Those who seek to make a name for themselves in the building of Babylon or basically those to whom God will make a name in the call of Abraham. See, we don't have to make a name for ourselves. God's going to do that for us. And our name is God's name. We don't have to build tall towers so people can look to us. All we have to do is point them to Jesus. And that's our jobs. Genesis 10, now we get back to this, um, the table of the nations that I've mentioned, right? You guys are so excited because guess what? It's a, basically a genealogy. Luckily for you, I haven't put the whole thing. I've just done the first verse and the last verse because <laughs> I didn't want to read it all out. So the first verse is, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, which is what that previous text was talking about, Ham and that guy. <clears throat> sons were born to them on, after the flood. So basically, Noah and his wife had three extra children after the flood, those guys. So if anybody wants a name, here you go. And then the last one, the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies by their nations and from these nations, spread over the earth after the flood. There's a bit of Edenic language in there again, if you can hear. So what's the point of another genealogy? Like, we get, I don't know about you, have you ever read Matthew 1? If you're feeling like you need to fall asleep, there's two things you can do. You can go find all the genealogies (laughs) in the Bible and go read them, or you can read Leviticus. I guarantee you, you're gonna fall asleep. But there's actually more to an ancient genealogy than what we think there is because they function actually very differently to what we, ours is like a record keeping. You got mom and dad and like these lines, like that photo and this children. It's just a record of family names really and people. But for them, there was an immense amount of significance and theological um, kind of uh, structure that was built into the genealogies. If you guys are really interested, go read the genealogies before the flood and after. This genealogy is highly unique. There is no other genealogy in ancient literature that appears like the Table of Nations does. And I'll explain to you why. Because the Lexham Bible Dictionary gives us a little bit of understanding here. So Genesis 10 offers a genealogy outline developing the development of the known world after the flood. Okay, cool. Each of Noah's descendants in this genealogy bears the name of a city or geographical region, which is quite interesting, but that's not the point. The list is similar to the structure of other genealogies, so if those who are interested in nighttime reading, there's Genesis 4, Genesis 5, Genesis 11, if you wanna read a genealogy. New Testament genealogies are Matthew 1 and Luke 2, 3. So a guy called Rogers, I'm not sure who he is, I think he adds to the Lexham Bible Dictionary. He points out that this section is necessary in the biblical narrative, and we're like, why? Well, to demonstrate how the earth was repopulated after the flood, because it sets the stage for the story of Abraham. Well, why is that so interesting? Well, it's a great question. Let me explain. Here's the, the geological locations, if you're all interested. But that's, again, remember, it's not the point. I'm gonna go to the next one. So what makes it new, unique? So it's divided into three groups, Shem, Ham, and Jay. <laughs> and guess what, non, none of them mention a lifespan or an age. So if you go back and you see, now look, have a look and see the differences between this genealogy and all the others. And the focus is a genetic relationship between the nations. So, even though it functions as this geo ethnic kind of map, geography is not its concern. What's interested is the number of nations mentioned. Now, remember, I had said to you that Nimrod is the only individual name person mentioned in here. And remember that's to make a point. So you've got nation, 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 nimrod, nation, nation, nation. <clears throat> so that's the bridge. They're going connection, connection, but the other connections are the nations. And their number, because number is quite important in Hebrew language, hey Quinton, it's the number 70. So they would have picked up, Ah, oh, what does this mean to us though? Because I know 70 just sounds old. Right, so another guy called Nahum, again, a scholar. <laughs> so the peoples listed amounted precisely to 70, right? Excluding Nimrod. So that's interesting, is that you got all these, by mentioning Nimrod, who is different to the rest, they exclude him, which means he doesn't, make, he doesn't matter going forward which to me, in my head, I'm making the connection. Or what they're doing is they're going this far and no further with the nephilim. They are not included in God's plan because why? They are a perversion of the divine and the and the and the earthly. All right. Please don't get offended on behalf of all giants. It is in the biblical world that the number seventy is type that typographical, type that yeah, huh? Typological. Typological, okay. I read a lot, so it sounds amazing in my head, but my my, the voice in my head and my mouth aren't always connected. That is, it is used a rhetorical effect to evoke the idea of totality, of comprehensiveness on a large scale, as opposed to the number of seven, which is on a smaller scale. So you guys have learned something new already. In the light of this convention, one may safely assume that in making the offspring of Noah's sons total 70, it's a literary device, and it's conveying the notion of totality of the human race. Guess what? Every single one of us is included in the nations. No matter where you come from, who you are, Every single race, every single person is included. It's comprehensively total of everyone. That's what it's saying. And I won't talk about that. The device affords insight to the major function of the table of nations. It's a document far unparalleled in the ancient world. This strangely perplexing, that of peoples, tribes, and places is no mere academic or scholastic exercise. It affirms, first of all, the common origin and the absolute, absolute unity of humankind after the flood. It also asserts that in various way, varied ways, the humans divide themselves into secondary or are secondary to the essential unity of the hum- international community. Which in other words, we're all one, Family. Guess what? What does God want? Who does he want? Everyone. Even the scholars will say that. The table of nations, right. So it was geographical. It was portioned off. And actually, even though God portioned it off to other lesser humans, he is still sovereign in that they own their terrestrial, terrestrial. Terrestrial, is that right? Identity to sovereign God. Even though He's given them, He's delegated, guess what, we still get identity from Him. The author invites the reader to, port- to this portrait of, it's a f- the future of the nations. And what is that? Remember one family, the table of the nations then becomes a palette, I love this, of hope, of future hope. So they know that when they're reading Genesis 9, then they read Genesis 10, they're like, hmm, there's hope in here somewhere. So they keep, that hope is there, and then they read Genesis 11, where everything goes south again and again, but there's still hope that God is intertwining into the messages because they know something's coming. Someone is coming. You see, God has always had a plan. It's always been the same plan, and He will make a way. So inheritance, and it's through the call of one man, and I'm just touching on Abraham. So right on the heels of his decision to disinherit the nations, God calls Abram out. Of Mesopotamia, He calls a Babylonian. He calls a guy who lives in the middle of this crazy, sinful, violent society, calls a man out of that place. So out of the heart of rebellion, he makes a new nation. Don't you think that's amazing? So all of the nations, and this is in Genesis 12 now, he says all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abram, through his descendants. You see, that's another link. So the Lincoln Table of Nations now links to Genesis 12. So through those who are disinherited and will be in spiritual bondage because these corrupt sons of God, Israel now becomes the conduit through one man, one nation, for the nations to return back to God it was never the point that Israel become this nation who was so isolated from the rest of the world. It was always supposed to be that they were the conduit to the rest of the world so that other people can get to know their God. It's the same with the church. You see, because we go, Abraham, future through the call of one man, leads to a nation who leads to, who's a descendant of Abraham? Jesus. See, God will always leave a trail back to Himself. And you read through, I was reading through yesterday, Genesis 1 to 11, just like the whole thing. You can see the links. So you see the links of the nakash, the seed, of these people making these selfish decisions and making their names, you see the links, but you see the links through the others. Abel, You see the link through Abel, Enoch, Noah. You see the link, that there's always this link of hope and grace, that redemption that comes through. God will always make a way. I'm not sure where my next slide is, Lee. Is it not there? Okay. So how are we gonna be unpacking the next part of this series is We're gonna bring Jesus in. So now you're all wondering, okay, that's all great, and we kind of know it, but now we're gonna start linking up through Abraham the call of Jesus, what the Messiah does. And guess what? Like I said two weeks ago, I think, the Messiah not only Jesus not only died to be the Messiah for Israel, he didn't die for just our sins. For Genesis 3. Guess what? He solves the issue, and this is what we get to unpack the issue of Genesis 6 in an incredible way, and he solves the issue of Genesis 11. He completes, undoes, so that recreation and God's order gets restored back into our world. And guess what? We're a part of that, because guess whose family we're part of? God's family.